Hello, CNFers. Hope you're having a CNF and good week. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction and how you can apply the tips and tricks from essayists, memoirists, journalists, radio producers, podcasters, and documentary filmmakers to improve your own work. That's a riff-worthy intro, no? My producer's nodding his head. Hit it. Speaking of face-melting groups, I saw Metallica last week for the seventh time. Cut me open and I bleed Metallica. For whom the bell tolls blew my mind. What a show. And being in Oregon, well, I saw them in Seattle, but being in Oregon and only a few miles away from the path of totality, I'll be camping in nearby Albany for the solar eclipse. So it's a big, big week over here. But you didn't download this episode because you wanted to hear about my silly little life. You want to know about this week's purveyor of creative nonfiction. Her name is Penny Lane. And yes, that's her real name. I mean, her website says PennyLaneIsMyRealName.com. She's at Lenny Payne on Twitter, though she's not that active. Maybe you can help her with that. Knock on her door. Penny is a documentary filmmaker whose work includes Nuts, Our Nixon, and the short film Voyagers, which Maria Popova at BrainPickings.org featured by saying, The Voyagers is a beautiful short film by video artist and filmmaker Penny Lane, made of remixed public domain footage, a living testament to the creative capacity of remix culture. Using the story of the legendary interstellar journey and the golden record to tell a bigger, beautiful story about love and the gift of chance. Lane takes the golden record, quote, a valentine dedicated to the tiny chance that in some distant time and place we might make contact, end quote, and translates it into a valentine to our own, quote, fellow traveler, all the while paying profound homage to Sagan, as in Carl Sagan's, spirit and legacy. And Popova also says, like, how sublime it is to lose oneself in the poetry of Lane's closing words, and you should just go check out the movie. It's about 16 minutes long and hear it because it is beautiful. It doesn't get any better than that, an endorsement from Popova. In this episode, you're going to hear what it means to level up and turn the volume up on ambition, and maybe how to cultivate a sense of patience around your own work. Be sure to check out Penny's work at her website and purchase her movies on Vimeo. Nuts won't disappoint. Dig the show? Share it with a friend, and please leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, my friends. Without further ado, here is Penny Lane for episode 62 of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. A lot of times when I've spoken with writers and everything, I always had some some sort of connection to reading and writing, even at a very young age, and then they grew up to be working writers or what. Did you have a, a similar a, a similar affinity for motion picture growing up, or did you have some other other artistic thing you liked and then graduated towards filmmaking? Yeah, what's funny about that is that I've never I'm really not a cinephile. I never have been I didn't grow up that way. I wasn't obsessed with movies. From a pretty young age, I was really into art, like visual art, drawing and stuff like that. And then also I was really into writing. So those were the things that I was really into growing up, writing and and like visual art. Movie making came much later and through a process, like through a series of turns that are like almost impossible for me to put together at this point in my life. Like, um, but the main thing was that in undergraduate school, I got, you know, I, I, I like got pretty interested in this field of media studies and I kind of like developed my own major and the major was sort of media studies. So it was this interdisciplinary um, kind of study set of studies having to do with film and anthropology and, you know, um, sociology and stuff like that. And at school at Vassar, I got involved in a nonprofit called children's media project, which was 
you know, this local nonprofit that taught filmmaking to kids. And I ended up working there and through working there and like kind of helping little kids make movies, you know, before I'd ever made movies myself, I got into it. So it was all sort of like backwards. <laughs> right. And do you, do you remember a specific moment when you were, when you were developing as, as a creator where it just kind of clicked that it was like, oh, this is something I want to explore a little bit deeper. I don't. I mean, I, I, I don't really. I mean, it was so weird and gradual. I mean, it's not like my life story is not a story of someone who set out with a particular goal and then achieved it. I have always been kind of like broadly curious about a lot of different things. And, you know, and I've had especially, you know, in my younger days, I had a lot of different visions of what my life could be. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a social worker. You know, at some point I thought I'd get a PhD in film studies. I mean, I really had a lot of ideas about different paths my life could take. The thing that's great about doing documentary film is that you can kind of do any of those. You kind of do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Like it's a really broad set of sort of things that go into making a documentary. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that there's lots of different kinds of documentary filmmakers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you can like sort of approach it in so many different ways that, you know, and then also in terms of content, you become an expert sort of on like a certain subject matter for a certain period of time. And then you can just move on and become interested in completely different subject matter. Right. Do you know what I mean? So like, it's kind of like a great, you know, and depending on, you know, Oh, well I'm more interested in writing right now, or I'm more interested in shooting or I'm more interested in music or whatever, all the different elements of filmmaking, you can kind of, emphasize in terms of like selecting your next project. So it's, it's kind of like just not one job. And so it's, it's, it doesn't, it's like a yet another example of me not having to choose a career, you know? (laughs) So as an undergraduate, I couldn't choose, I could not decide what to major in. So I had to invent my own major and petition the school to allow me to do it. And it was like a eclectic amalgamation of all these different things I was interested in. And I sort of feel like I've just continued doing that with my my career now. I made up my own major. <laughs> <laughs> and do you did you have a an influential uh, mentor along along the way that that would uh, say, oh, you know, you you're do you're onto something here. You know, keep going. It's a little hard now, but keep pushing through. Yeah, I think probably like one of the most you know, and there's probably earlier people, but what comes to mind when you ask that question is when I was making my first feature length documentary, which was called our Nixon that came out in 2013. And, you know, it didn't take that long in the grand scheme of things to make it. It took about two years, but it was also like a big transition for me because I had been making short experimental work for not quite like, I don't know, seven or eight years at that point. And you know, it was kind of like on a certain scale. I was making short experimental films that might play in like experimental film, uh, experimental film festivals, you know, and I just wasn't, it was just kind of like, I don't know how to put this. It was like small potatoes, you know, Mm -hmm. like I loved what I was doing, but my expectations in terms of reach, in terms of financing, in terms of everything, um, were very small, just like really modest. And when I was working on Arnixon, you know, it started with the same kind of set of ideas. It was sort of like, well, I'm making this weird art film and I'll, you know, make it, make it by myself. And then I'll, you know, show it at some experimental film festivals or something. And really what changed the whole course of the project and, and then probably the course of my life was connecting pretty early on when I was making that film with a guy named Dan Kogan. And he became the executive producer of that film and also of my next film nuts. But more importantly, he became a really important mentor to me. He's not even that much older than me, but he has, he's a, he's a person in, in the world of documentary film who kind of knows everything and knows all the business stuff and just knows that, you know, just sort of knows that field. And he really, I don't think he even realizes how influential he was on me because he's sort of, guided me into the world of independent film 
which I just didn't think I belonged in and I never tried to be in before. And I don't even know if, if your listeners would really understand the difference between what I've been doing before. And, and like when I say the difference between making sort of small art films, it was basically within a fine arts tradition, like an avant-garde film kind of tiny, 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 like world of makers and, and viewers. And then independent film, which, you know, ostensibly can be a huge audience, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the difference between making a film that might play in a few experimental film festivals and making a film that might be on HBO is, is just a very big change. It's a big change in, in terms of production. It's a big change in terms of process. It's a big change in terms of like just everything. So Dan came along and Dan kind of like slowly nudged me closer and closer to like this latter thing, this whole new way of making films and thinking about films and, and having just bigger ambitions. Yeah, that's, I, I think that this, this pays to unpack this a little bit because uh, a, a big reason why, you know, I had, uh, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Krulik on uh, a, a while ago who, you know, brought your, brought your name up and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and thus, you know, I reached, reached out to you is I've, I've spoken to a lot of, uh, primarily uh, writers on the show, which is which is great. That's an area of genre uh, narrative nonfiction, and I've been desperately wanting to get more people like yourself on who are doing the same thing, just with a different medium. And uh, I want to learn too. I, I'm a primarily, well, almost exclusively, just a, a writer, and I want to learn more. And through me learning and the other people listening who might be wanting to experiment with this, with a documentary film, they might learn something as well. So if you feel like you're getting granular or, or you feel like it's uh, maybe, you know, boring, it definitely is not like what, so what were some of those, the early steps as you were starting to slowly knock down those early dominoes as you are starting to learn a little more about documentary film and the business of it and how you can start sort of making, making a career out of it, making a go of it. Yeah. I mean, I think again, the main thing was just really having bigger ambitions. You know, it just never really occurred to me. I was making moving image work and there's a kind of like little comfortable world that I was a part of. And I just frankly was never that good at it anyway. Like basically, I was a, what, what, what people call video art. I was making video art. I got an MFA, a fine arts degree. I did not go to film school. I went to art school. And so, you know, th this world of video art can be quite big. I mean, you can be Bill Viola and be like a very, very famous video artist. Um, but you know, the world that I lived in was obviously not, was just not that it was just sort of like, I don't know how to put it without sounding like I'm being disparaging. It's just a very small world, you know, and you can sort of build up your credibility and your name within that small world. And that's great. And it's like really awesome and valid. I don't think I was a very good video artist. So I don't think I was ever going to like be great in that field. I, I just, I think all along I really just wanted to make movies mm -hmm. and I didn't know that I, I think I wouldn't, I think this is why it's so hard for me to put these pieces together in a way that makes sense as a narrative, because I think it might be true that when I was younger, I just simply didn't have the self-confidence to think I could make a movie. I mean, it just seemed like way out of my reach, uh -huh. Yeah. but I, but I did think I could make a weird experimental short film that like 10 people would like. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Like it wasn't really about like my artistic identity so much. It was about what I thought I could do, what I could accomplish. Was there a fear there? Like a fear element of taking that ambitious step to doing something that's that when no. done well is more visible? It wasn't fear. It was simply never considering it. <laughs> you know? I think I would have been afraid if the question had ever been asked, but it just wasn't. It just didn't occur to me. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Like, yeah. I'm constantly figuring I'm almost 40 years old now. And I'm still like thinking about how I set the bar very, I constantly, like I, I set the bar very low for myself constantly. And, you know, I, I just need to learn that. It's like, I'm almost 40 and I'm still doing it. You know, like I, 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 I I'll work on something, I'll make something, I'll think of an idea for something. And then my, my expectations for what that thing will do in the world will always be 
far exceeded in reality. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> like, you know, that's, it's nice. It's certainly nicer than like having really ambitious goals and then not meeting them. But at a certain point, I kind of wonder if I'm not even achieving what I could be achieving if I was just setting my goals a little higher. Mm -hmm. And how did you, what would, would you say is the first thing that you made after ha having met Dan yeah. to, yeah. to start leveling up? Well, it was our Nixon. Okay. You know, it was our Nixon. Okay. Yeah. It was really like, you know, beginning that project, thinking of it in one way, which was, I was going to make it myself with no money, you know, um, you know, and, and, and show it to a few people, you know, um, and, and, and it would have this kind of small reach. And Dan thought, Dan saw, saw like a very early version of it. Like it was barely a movie at that point, but he saw some footage and we talked a lot and he said, you know, you know, this is like potentially could have a lot of legs. Like you could, this could be a really big film. And I kind of didn't really believe him. And, you know, and I just kind of, did things he said, which was things like, you know, apply for this certain lab or, you know, try to get relationships with these certain funders, et cetera, et cetera. And I would do it because he'd say to, and then it kept working. And I was like, I guess he's right. I guess I, I think I just, uh, actually make work that's more commercially viable than I thought or something. Um, so anyway, but yeah, it was really our Nixon. It was like the, the film didn't, change in terms of my artistic goals for the film but the my ideas about the reach the potential audience and reach for the film changed a lot what was that like for you to experience to to have that experience and 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 see how it was received to see something like that from beginning to end and be like yeah something that can be more visible more commercial but still be artistically satisfying as well it was great. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. And it was also very gradual, you know, so it wasn't like one day I woke up and that was the case, you know, <laughs> it was, um, it was very much more like this kind of gradual, slow realization. And then one day I, I was, you know, premiering my film at South by Southwest. So there you go. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, you say our, our Nixon was your, maybe your first late what you would consider ambitious, but, uh, what, but Voyagers, that was like a beautiful yeah. story. I would call that, I would throw that in terms of am ambition and, and just pure beauty and, and storytelling. And you guys, how long is it? 15 minutes or so, or 12 minutes? I, I, yeah. 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 It's like 16, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right around there. And it's, it's gorgeous and just so it's so incredibly moving and i would put that up right up there with anything that's longer and and, and ambitious in storytelling I, how did you come to that well, well let me put it this way i don't think that i've ever been unambitious in terms of creative ideas hmm. uh i i have been not as ambitious as i should be in terms of what i do with my work like what kinds of yeah what kinds of expectations i have with my with the with the with with getting it out in the world and stuff like that does that make sense yeah or or even getting it funded like i've never really paid myself appropriately and all that kind of stuff so i, I but i don't think my problem <laughs> mm -hmm. i definitely don't think my problem is that uh i lack ambition in terms of my artistic process or whatever yeah okay so so what so you were alluding to it earlier as well when when you had, uh, when you had met Dan and have, having these conversations about trying to make the work more visible, um, what were those dialogues like, and what were some of those actionable steps that you had to take to start, uh, you know, start le leveling up a little more? What were you know so incrementally? What were you doing to to make that next level? I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it, it's it's so it's so granular that I'm afraid that we'll we'll be in the weeds. But it's like mm -hmm. the difference between like applying to a certain kind of film festival over another one, mm -hmm. you know? So like in the world of filmmaking, there's this whole kind of game you have to play about where you world premiere your film. And that's like a, uh, give, you know, who you give your world premiere to is like something has something to do with, it doesn't have something to do with it. It's seen as a sign of like where you stand in the, in the world in terms of your stature, Okay. Um, see that so, so, to me so that's pretty like, interesting that yeah, there, that there is so, this kind of jockeying for yes. yeah 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 so so it's more like you know having to um 
you know, think about, think, just have more ambition. I don't know how else to put it. Like yeah. on, at every level, how much will this film cost to make? Well, you can decide that it costs, you know, X amount. And that means you don't pay yourself and you beg, borrow and steal. And you kind of like, you know, just kind of like cut corners and, you know, your expectations for what the film will make are very low. So you wouldn't want to spend very much. Or you can say, no, fuck that. Like I, my time is really important and I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to pay myself mm-hmm. <laughs> for my time and I'm going to make sure everyone that works in this film gets paid appropriately because I want to get their best work, you know, and I'm going to budget this amount for a sound mix because, you know, I think it should have a top caliber sound mix as opposed to like, oh, the one where like you asked your friend who's still in grad school to like give it a shot. See what I mean? Like yes. if that's it's that kind of stuff. It's like every stage of the process, there's, pl- there's ways you can be ambitious or not be ambitious. <laughs> Is it one of those deals where you, where like once you got, once you started asking that of others and asking that of yourself that you're like, shit, I wish I had done this five years ago. Um, yeah, I always feel like that. I mean, I still think that I didn't apply to good enough colleges. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I, I inevitably look back and think, oh yeah, like when I negotiated that business deal, the fact that the person who I was negotiating with instantly said yes to my <laughs> my offer was a mistake. You know, like obviously I didn't ask for enough. So yeah, so I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it'll ever end. So in those... So in your earlier years as you're developing as as a filmmaker and maybe not asking for the paying yourself or asking for the dollar you deserve what what kind of things are you doing on the side to help subsidize the art you are making Oh and it's really not even on the side I I have a, a career as a college professor I mean I'm a tenured college professor okay. I didn't know that Yeah. So that's a whole other thing. So like, I've never really had to rely, I've I've never had to rely on filmmaking as my primary income generating thing. I've, I've actually made a lot of money in filmmaking over the last few years, but it was never anything where I was relying on that. You know, it was never like, well, if this film doesn't sell, I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage. It was, no, it's never been like that. Okay. Right and and uh, with with respect to Voyagers, uh, how did you come to that to that story and wanting to tell tell that story that that Valentine, if you will? Uh huh. Um, well, that was really. I mean, that film was completely um, just a, a gift for my fiance at that time. So it was a wedding gift um, for him, and so it's you know, addressed to him and it was really made for him. It was made for one person. That was, uh, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't put myself down in this one. I mean, I really did have an audience of one in mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the whole, that was the whole point. And it took, um, you know, it took a little time after it was done before I was like, you know, actually, I think this is a really good film. Um, and I should maybe put it out there and see if anyone else likes it. I mean, it, it was, it was actually honest to God made, to play at my wedding and that was it that was the exhibition plan yeah so the inspiration was for for your soon-to-be husband and yeah so how did you how did you like what was the spark the you know, sort of the you know what struck you about the you know the idea of the these two satellites going out there carl sagan's um his relationship with his his wife there you know where did you come to that in your career and then how did you begin to formulate that into something that was a story yeah i mean i had heard the story of carl sagan you know falling in love with Annie drian when they were working on the golden record together i'd heard that story and i thought it was amazing uh like just a great it's a great story you know there's no like sort of point to it in and of itself, it's like, well, they met doing this inspiring thing. That's cool, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, But I had heard that and thought that was pretty interesting and neat. And I'm a big Carl Sagan fan, so, you know, it was interesting to me. But then, you know, when I, but then, you know, when I thought about making a, making a film as a gift for my, for my then, my then fiance, I thought, well, making a film about love would be a natural subject. 
to make it to, to pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then I was like, well, I got this great love story that I really like. What about that, you know, is interesting to me or why am I drawn to that story? Or like, what is something that I could say per what, what would I add that's personal to that? You know? Um, and I just came up with this idea of taking risks, you know, and, and the idea of, um, kind of, uh, you know, hope and risk taking and, and the role that those things play in, in, in love and relationships and also the role that those things play in science and exploration. And, um, and that was the original concept. And then from there, it was just sort of like, you know, a little bit of a spiral, right? So it's like, oh, what about this subject? This feels related to, you know, um, and then there was a, a writing process that, that went alongside the archival, you know, research and, and editing process. And it, I went back and forth between writing and editing, writing and editing. It probably took about six months to make the film. It, what was your reaction when uh, Maria Popova uh, wrote a little, you know, a, a post about it on brain picking? So like, what you must, like, she's every bit as influential, if not more influential than the New York times or any other place like that. I mean, so what did that mean when that, when you found that out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was so cool. Cause I actually, am just a huge fan of that, um, that, uh, website, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I had no idea that, um, that she had watched it or was interested and in, or any of that. So, um, it was great. <laughs> it was a nice surprise. Actually, I didn't even know that it had happened. I just noticed one day that like 300,000 people had watched the film or something, you know, and I was like, Oh, like something happened. Something happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, that uh, to get a, to get an endorsement from her, she's just got such a great eye and ear for anything. So it's like, you know, anything that she curates is you know super valuable and worth watching. I mean, that's so. Let's talk about uh, talk about validation for the work you do, and you know if that if she's able to endorse something like that just for on her own volition. Yeah, it was really really nice, and I think it made a difference in the in the long term kind of like popularity of the film. How did you come across John R. Brinkley, Doctor John R. Brinkley's work, and how, when did you start to see? the the kernel of this this narrative for what ended up becoming nuts uh i came across a book called charlatan in the public library where i lived it was just a book on the you know librarian's picks shelf and it's about brinkley and i read that book and it's it was very interesting i mean you could read i mean it's an it's an excellent book it's a very well written incredibly entertaining wonderful book but i also would say you could just read john brinkley's wikipedia page and and find it interesting right i mean like the actual just facts of his life are are pretty amazing so yeah so i came across that and i thought this is a story made for the movies. I mean, it's like, so it's such a dramatic, uh, you know, sort of rise and fall. It's such a kind of classic American 20th century tragedy, you know? So on that scale, I thought this would make a great film. I should, you know, think about whether that could be something I'd want to make, but it took a long time, maybe two years to really put together and in, in reality, what kind of a film it would be. It took a long time uh, because, you know, it, it's just, well, yeah, just how to tell the story took a long time to figure out. How did you land on, in, in general, but especially with Nuts, like, how do you land on using animation for, for the story as a, as a way of propelling the narrative forward? Well, in that case, you know, I started out, I was working on that film concurrently with our Nixon. I had started nuts in like 2008, but I didn't, but I really didn't know what I was doing with it. I mean, I, I was committed to the, to this idea of this movie about this subject, but I really didn't know much more than that. Other than like, I was trying out a lot of different ideas in my head. Our Nixon got off the ground a little faster and I made that film and then finished it. And our Nixon, as you know, is all archival. So um, the whole movie is made up of pre-existing material media. Um, so Brinkley, the Brinkley film, Nuts, I started it the same way. I thought it would be an all archival film. 
And I did tons and tons of archival research and I put a lot of time and effort into that. And I traveled around the country and I found all this great archival material, all these old newspaper clippings and his promotional films and some stuff from his radio station, all this stuff. But it didn't, what I, what I knew I wanted to do from the very beginning, the very beginning was I wanted to do something with the form of the movie that would mirror the content being about a con man. Like I wanted the movie to be a con the way that Brinkley con people. I wanted to do that with the movie. And I had that idea from the beginning and I could tell, well, I mean, after I tried it, <laughs> the archival material wasn't going to allow me to do that. Nobody in 2010 or whatever was going to look at the archival material and believe John Brinkley. Do you know what I mean? Like it just, he, he, he doesn't, his, his seductiveness doesn't really translate to a contemporary audience. And so the idea of doing reenactments started to come out and I was like, okay, well, what kind of reenactments do I want to make? And really animation came about through a process of elimination because I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to like learn how to direct actors on sets. Like I just have no interest in that at all. But I, but I kind of like came, I thought, well, I can handle animation. I can handle that level of like fiction filmmaking. And were you, when you get towards, towards the end with the, with the court scenes and everything, are you pulling off of court transcripts of the time? Yeah, I would say like ev literally every scene in the movie is, is, is being, you know, uh, uh, derived from some kind of real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so whether that's, you know, uh, something he, that was written in his, bi the biography or something that I found in a newspaper article or the transcripts from the trial, you know, like, so e everything has something, to, you know, and then there's varying levels of like, uh, you know, kind of fictionalization, let's say, but, you know, from, from like literally just like, this is the words <laughs> that are in the transcript to like rewriting. What did you find most fascinating about spending all that time with, uh, quote unquote, Dr. Brinkley? Hmm. I think the most fascinating thing about spending all that time with him was probably the question of what he himself believed about what he was doing, because it's, you know, not clear um, on the one hand, it seems perfectly obvious that he knew he was um, he was uh, scamming people, that he knew it was fake. Um, on the other hand, it seems to me that he probably believed that it worked. You know, he had people standing in front of him with tears in their eyes saying like, Doc, you cured me, <laughs> you know. So I feel like, you know, so I, there's something about the, the kind of what did he believe? And then in it, just like one, one step removed from that, like what did his wife believe? <laughs> uh, yeah, that I found very interesting. And I have no answers to. I mean, I think the only, the only and I, I really don't know. So because I don't know, I have to go with, um, well, he believed it and he didn't, you know, um, the way we all have things that we kind of like believe that are contradictory, you know, if we look closely. Uh, but yeah, I just didn't think, uh, I really don't know. Yeah. Cause he, when you're watching the, the archival footage, you, he doesn't, he's not super showy in any sense. He dresses nicely. Um, but mm -hmm. he's not, he's not flamboyant. He's not like PT Barnum in that sense, you know, twirling, you know, doing a dance and, and asking for the sale. Like he's kind of, he plays the part of the wholesome, of, of a very wholesome guy and very trustworthy. It's like when you really think about what he was doing, it's like, I think one of the, one of the men you were interviewing, you know, he's like, I can't diagnose him as a psychopath, but this guy didn't have a feeling bone in his body. And right. it's like, well, like who was, it just, yeah, it does. It's, the film raises a lot of interesting questions that we just can't know the answer to. Uh, just because we can't be in his head right now. It's, it's just. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's very it's all psychological and it's all about the kind of nature of belief and why we believe the things we believe and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And after making uh, movies like Our Next and, and and Nuts, what like what is your 
like what are your goals now going forward for this, narr- this sort of narrative storytelling of this nature? Well, I asked that question a different way. I'm not sure I know what you mean. I guess uh, what um, it, these seem to have unlocked uh, a different a different kind of uh, different kind of storytelling for you. You know, something that's a bit a bit longer and reaching yeah. a, a deeper or broader audience. So I wonder, like, maybe what what has that unlocked for you, and what are you excited about telling in the future in this vein? Well, I do think that, you know, between working on our Nixon and working on nuts, like, you know, I, I kind of started to understand like a bit more about the kinds of stories that I'm interested in. And it's not even really the kind, like it, it, it's, it's, yeah, it is the kinds of stories. It's the kinds of stories that allow me to think about storytelling, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I guess every story you could do that, but there are certain kinds of stories that, you know, kind of push you to think about the form in a way that's like really overt in a way. Uh, you know, in other words, like with our Nixon, you've got a bunch of home movies. I mean, what is that? What story is that? Like, you know, and, and it really, you know, kind of evolved to become about the difference between the story that Nixon's aides were telling themselves in the present tense and the story that history tells about the Nixon presidency in the past tense. So that was that movie. And then with Nuts, of course, it was, you know, everything having to do with like the way that you tell the story of Brinkley either. Yeah. Either he's a hero or a villain, (laughs) Uh, you know, and I just really liked that. Uh, So well, yeah, and you kind of run into the the same exact thing with uh, just add water that short you did for CNN, where yeah, you had, you had the the scientist doing something that uh, made a lot of people happy, but then it, it ends up he ends up being a, a white supremacist. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you're you, you the strength from nuts and that one is that you you build up someone as a likable character and then totally just chop you at the knees, be like, no, this guy's kind of a dick. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, it's like, you know, there's this idea that people have about documentary films where they don't even, I think they don't even realize they have this idea. I mean, I think I have this idea and I'm about to tell you, uh, where, you know, you see a documentary film and you get the idea that the story that you've seen in this movie is just like, sitting out there in the world and all the filmmaker did was like go and pick it up and like was lucky enough to find it. And then here they are handing it to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just not like that. (laughs) It's like just a million and one choices being made about every single aspect of every single nugget of corner of second of everything that that changed what the story is does that make sense like so you know so I feel like the last few films like I've been very preoccupied with kind of like trying to push the audience to think about that a little bit more to make it really clear that there is there is a point of view in the film Mm -hmm. and if you shift the point of view of the film within the film then um then then you know I feel like it's pretty obvious yeah because if you start the movie at a different place whether it's like, oh, this is a, the story of a charlatan, and that it totally recolors the whole thing. You see the beginning, which seems so right. so innocent right. and American dreamish, yeah. But you realize that it's kind of sinister. But when you, if you save that for the end, then it's all of a sudden it it totally kind of catches you off guard, and then the the epilogue of that and the repercussions of the man's decisions are all the more are all the more powerful. And- yeah, yeah, and I'm glad to hear you say that, because that, that's definitely, like, the idea. The idea of the movie was always to kind of, like, to to maximize the chance, and I couldn't guarantee it, but to maximize the chance that someone would watch the film and kind of, like, have a certain idea about what the truth was and then realize within the same film that uh, they were wrong. That's all, you know? I mean, it sounds very simple. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there are lots of works of fiction that do that. But I don't think it's done very much in nonfiction. Or at well, least not in, do- in documentary film. I shouldn't say not nonfiction. N- you know, creative nonfiction in terms of writing has, like, you know, just, what, a couple thousand years of uh, headway. <laughs> documentary <laughs> film, in some ways, is like a very primitive art form. <laughs> yeah. So I, I find most of my artistic inspiration comes from writers and not from <laughs> not from other films. Yeah, and it's something you said earlier about all the 
the little choices that you have have to make in terms of structure and editing and all that. I was wondering if maybe you could uh, like give a few examples of of some of those debates that you are having maybe with you and some other producers or just or just yourself about moving things around like those decisions that could totally affect the tonality of of a film and what you it's as someone who's a, a, a novice in terms of getting into the esoteric of documentary filmmaking i'd love to hear how you process those decisions about where to put things and how to make the cohesive whole that you that you're aiming for oh it's just so hard and <laughs> just <laughs> like you know you 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 know it's in retrospect it always looks so simple you know at the end uh but you just have to muddle through. And like right now I'm in the early stages of like a bunch of projects. And so, so now, you know, in the early stages, it's just like being lost in the wilderness and just like trying all these different things and seeing what you think works. Um, and then, you know, as hopefully as you get closer to like understanding what you're actually making, you know, being a director, your only job is to understand the big picture goals of the film. And then, you know, you have to be able to communicate to all the other people that work on your film, all these people, which for me, you know, small time documentary filmmaker might be like a dozen people working on the film in total. But, you know, for obviously for for, you know, um, Steven Spielberg, that's like thousands of people working on the film. Right. And so like your only job is to know how to answer everyone else's questions. Well, do you want this scene to be? you know, you talk to the colorist and they ask you if you want it to be more warm or more cool. You have to have an answer that has something to do with the big picture goal, mm. right? Because the colorist doesn't know. The colorist is looking at the color. The color has, the colorist has no idea, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, what the, what, what the color should be because they don't know the point of the movie. So when you, when, you know, if someone says, we were setting up this scene, do you want the, you know, that, that painting on the wall behind the table, or do you want me to take it down? Like you have to have a yes or no answer for that. And the person who is like dressing your set doesn't know the point of your movie. So they have no idea if the painting should be on the wall or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like it's not really the best answer, but I am trying to always remind myself that, you know, sometimes it feels like as the director, I'm like the only person who doesn't know what their job is because, you know, it's not very defined. <laughs> right. But, the, you know, my job is to know what the movie is, period. <laughs> that's my job. Yeah. Well, this is this is really enlightening to know because that's that's a detail that that matters, whether the, the picture needs to be hanging up in the background or, or not. It's 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 very enlightening to hear the little the little decisions that add up to, to mm -hmm. something, something big. And, and what about the process of from beginning to end of the filmmaking process appeals to your sensibility the most? What, like what, which do you prefer and what, what do you like best about it? I like editing. That's all I like. I just like editing. I don't like, creating images at all mm -hmm. like i mean earlier i said something about how you know most people don't realize who like the fact that doc, being a documentary filmmaker like that could look like a lot of different things the the idea people have about it typically is like oh a person with a camera and that person with a camera is out in the world and they're watching things unfold you know Yep. I never do that. And I don't like it. Like to the extent that I have done it, I'm like, ugh, I hate this. It's just <laughs> awful. I do not like it at all. I like editing. I like finding things and I like editing and I like archival stuff because, you know, the thing about working with pre-existing material that you didn't make yourself. So it's like every image has an author already attached to it. And then you are like the second author and you're doing this weird, fun, brain breaking dance of like negotiating the original author's intentions of the material versus what you're doing. Mm. And I, I really like that. I enjoy that process a lot. It's a it's a it's a wrestling match that I find infinitely interesting. Lots of people, lots of people really don't like it at all. You know, so that's just one thing I really enjoy. I like editing, 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 not making at images. Now, I'm very happy editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's and that's true also with the writing part. Like, like I I don't 
think I could ever write a fiction script that just like came out of my head. I don't even know what that would be like. I just can't imagine enjoying that at all. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the idea of like, you know, like with Nuts, you know, I adapted big chunks of that book. Now that's, that I can do. I can like, you know, I can take something that's already been written and then kind of like, um, you know, edit it to make it something else. I, I can do that. That, that makes sense to me. I like that. So it's not just in terms of images. It's also in terms of writing words and all that kind of stuff. So this is a total like novice newbie type type question, but it's something I curious about and uh, maybe someone else would be too. Um, mm -hmm. How do you go about obtaining uh, archival footage and what of it, like what, what might cost money versus what might be public? And then how do you put that on the screen? Like, do you play it on a TV and then film it or mm -hmm. on the TV? You know what I mean? Like those yeah. things that, that uh, I have no idea, and I'd love mm -hmm. to hear how you how you process that kind of stuff and obtain it and process it. Yeah. Well, the first part is, you know, a big surprise. It depends. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, like, you might find it on YouTube uh, and download it, or you might, you know, contact an archive and ask them what they have. So it's a really big range in terms of what, how you go about finding archival material. With our Nixon you know, almost everything in that film came from the Nixon library. So that was an example of an easy archival research process. I mean, there was lots and lots of work that went into it, but the vast majority of the material came from one place. So that really made it easier. Um, with John Brinkley, with Nuts, there was no Brinkley archive. So, you know, I had to go all over the country and like, you know, travel to all these different places and try to find stuff. And, you know, that was a whole other level. In terms of, like, how it ends up in the movie, again, it depends. If, if it's something where, you know, an archive has a film print, you, you would ask them to digitize it for you. I mean, I'm, a, I'm editing digitally. So whatever is in the movie is a digital file. Mm -hmm. So it's just a question of, like, how that digital file comes to be. It might be that it's, um, you know, transferred from a film. It might be that it's filmed off a of TV. It might be that I downloaded it from YouTube. Okay. So that, yeah. that's, that's good to know that, uh, it's just, I, I always wondered how that is. Like even with, um, say like newspaper clips, a lot of times you might take a scan, scan of it, and then you're able to like yeah. import it into your software. Exactly. And that, okay. What kind of software do you use for, for your editing? Um, up until recently, I always used Final Cut Pro, but I've recently switched to Adobe Premiere. If someone was just getting they uh, you know, just just kind of getting into into filmmaking or the idea of it, what are three to five documentaries that you would recommend uh, someone check out? Oh, well, I mean, it really depends what they're doing. Yeah. I, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I said before, there's a, it's a, there are a lot of different kinds of films. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's your Ken Burns style. There's, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's any number. There's like, like David Gelb doing Geraldine's Sushi or, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that is too broad a question, but let's rephrase it this way. What, what are three to five of your favorite that maybe you revisit a lot? Yeah. Well, one really important film to me was uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop, which I believe that came out in 2010. And so this is a documentary that was made by the street artist Banksy. And it's about another street artist named Mr. Brainwash. And it's it's has the, my interest in this film has almost nothing to do with the content. Like, I don't care about street art. It doesn't matter to me. But the form of this film is just is unbelievable. It's it's funny. It's super intellectual. It's a movie about big ideas that's like very very entertaining, and it has a kind of uh, twist to the structure that you basically like don't know what's being what's real and what's not kind of. So that movie was really important to me. Similarly, uh, the Werner Herzog film. He's made a lot of films that are great and you know classic and important. The one, the one of his films that influenced me the most was called Grizzly Man. And that's a good example of what I was saying earlier of like, so in that film, he's making a film about a filmmaker. 
you know, again, that, that, that the fun of like telling stories about stories or telling stories about storytellers and, you know, using this material that was filmed by his subject in a way that the subject didn't intend all that kind of stuff all is in this movie. It's also tragic and funny and it's, it's an incredible film. So let's see. So Grizzly man. Oh yeah. And then I would say there's an, uh, an essay film by the filmmaker Agnes Varda called the gleaners and I, which is very much a kind of personal memoir uh, about life. That is also a kind of reflection on the process of filmmaking and editing and, you know, um, what it, what it's like to like live a life where you're kind of like seeking images all the time. It's a really, really beautiful film. So when you're in the throes of production, what does your first 60 to 90 minutes of your day look like in terms of, (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because like, I just, there's so like no answer to that. My life is not, there's no routine at all. I'm like fighting really hard all the time to try to impose some order onto my life. (laughs) Um, but there isn't any, so I can't answer that. I mean, certainly during the school year when I'm being a professor, uh, I, I go to my, I go to class and I teach and stuff. And so that provides some like structure. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's not that like during right, like right now it's summer break. So I'm just working on films and it's just totally random. I mean, it just, it, you know, it, 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 this morning I was writing, uh, last week I was in a sound mix. So it's just, it's, it's there's no order. What continues to excite you about the, about the storytelling you're doing and about documentary film? I think it's like, it just doesn't, it's not getting any easier. Like, it's just not getting any easier. You know, I, I keep thinking, well, I've made this many films now and in the next one, I'll just know what I'm doing. I'll just know what I'm doing the whole time. <laughs> you know, that, that just never, it just never happens. I mean, yeah, you learn stuff like, you know, you get more efficient at certain parts of it. Maybe you're able to tell a little faster when you've had an idea that won't work for one reason or another. Maybe that gets faster and certainly all the business stuff, you know, it's not easy to raise money for independent films, period. But certainly having a con- having an idea of how the industry works helps, right? Yeah. Um, you know, your contact list gets longer and things like that. But so far, I can't say that it's gotten any easier to actually make the movie. Like, you know, it's, 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 it, it, so that keeps me interested. What are you working on now? And then maybe where can people stay abreast of, of your work and, uh, and ensure that they're constantly uh, you know, finding out what's going on with what you're working on? Yeah. Well, my website is Penny Lane is my real name dot com. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's uh, Penny Lane is my real name dot com. And if they want, they can sign up for my newsletter. I send it out like quarterly. It's very short. It's cute. It's not like a lot of email. And, and, you know, and they can see all the different things I've worked on there. I'm also on Twitter, but I never tweet. So who cares? Um, I don't understand Twitter. I'll never get it. I'll, it's just not for me. <laughs> like, I don't want uh, any more things in my life that just like demand my attention. I have too many already. Uh, what, what is your Twitter handle? Just in case people oh, knock on your door. Yeah, it's Lenny Payne, L-E-N-N-Y-P-A-N-E. So, but yeah, so Twitter and all that kind of stuff. I'm working on a lot of films that are in kind of early in development, so I can't really talk about them yet. Mm-hmm. But I can say that one of them I just finished. It's a short, um, kind of in the vein of Just Add Water, and I believe it will be released, you know, sometime this fall. But I'm not, I'm not sure yet. So I will have a short film coming soon, and I'm in the early stages of developing a couple of feature feature length documentaries that are. You know, will take God knows how long. Mm-hmm. I mean, nuts took seven years. You know, <laughs> our Nixon took two, and it turns wow. out I, I think two is as, as quick as it goes, really. But uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully, seven is not the length of the next couple. Yeah, and I, I was gonna let you go, but I need to follow up on one thing here with the <laughs> with the the seven years that it took you to 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 finish and produce produce nuts and i have known writers that take that long 10 years to work through a book how do you you grind through that you know the ugly middles and work through all that mud and choices that you have to make and 
get through uh, as Jessica Abel, who uh, is mm-hmm. a ca- cartoonist and has uh, worked closely with Ira Glass on book projects. Like they get into the dark forest is what they call mm-hmm. it. And oh, yeah. you can't see the end. You can't see the beginning. You don't know where you are, but you're mm-hmm. actually in a place of growth if you can get through it. So how do you get through the dark forest? I really don't know. I mean, I wish I had an answer for that. I think one thing is you lie to yourself and you just have no idea that you're doing it. Like (laughs) I constantly think that the thing I'm working on is much closer to being done than it really is. (laughs) Like, I really don't think that if I ever think like whatever I think is going on right now with these films is way wrong. I know that, you know, (laughs) but I'm just, I'm so sure. Like this film's going to be so easy it's just going to be, it's going to be fun. It's going to be easy and it's not going to take that long. And I tell myself that about everything I work on all the time. And it's always a lie. And I just, I don't know. I don't know that that's like a skill you can learn. I feel like that's that kind of like ability to deceive myself might just be a trait that I have. Um, so there's that. And then also I really believe that it just has to be like, that there is a problem you're trying to solve and the problem has to be interesting to you. Like, that's all. I mean, I, I can't imagine how I could stick with something that wasn't, that at the end of the day, like the problem that I'm trying to solve isn't interesting to me personally. Mm-hmm. You or, know? Or if like on day one of not someone said like, this movie's going to take you seven years. Oh yeah, I never would have done it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but at the end of the day, that film, I had this idea about a movie that would kind of, you know, function in a certain way. Like, is it possible that I could make this movie and kind of set it up so that my audience is likely, if not guaranteed, to believe, you know, A, B and C are true. And then in the same movie, without angering them, making them hate me, <laughs> reveal that I was lying and that A, B, and C are not true. Like, I thought that would be so interesting. Is that possible? I don't know if that's possible. That really might not work. But I thought, well, that's exciting, you know? Like, I really want to know if I can make that work. So, you know, so I kind of, like, was willing to stick with the project so I could find out whether I could make that work. Yeah, it's like that, that was, like, yeah, that that was se- the goal. That sense of challenging yourself really propelled you through... Yes. And then with our, you know, and so as a formal, you know, consideration, keep in mind, same thing. I mean, with our Nixon, the formal question was, can I tell this story without a narrator, without, you know, only using archival material, only using pre-existing material and only using like, well, that's it. Just only using pre-existing material. Can I do it? Can I, can I tell an entertaining and kind of in gripping story without shooting anything and without doing interviews, basically. Um, you know, and then what could be learned that might be new about the story that we already know so much about, you know, if by doing it. So, you know, and, and I didn't know the answer to that either. I really didn't. I was like, it may not be possible to, to make that movie that way. <laughs> like it might not work, but I wanted to find out. So, you know, for me, it's usually a formal question. Um, that that kind of keeps me interested. That's awesome. How you how you the Seth Godin says that too. Like with taking creative leaps, or whether it's being an entrepreneur, a writer, a filmmaker is mm-hmm. is the fundamental statement is this might not work. And, yeah, and then again, but when it does, when you're fully invested and enrolled in that process, and you're able to pull it off, well, you know that courage is is gonna pay off and if it doesn't it's it's just you can at least know you tried and then move on to something else yeah and you know it it sounds fun when i put it that way but you know it's not fun it's really hard (laughs) it's actually really hard and like mostly not fun i mean you know like no one said that making art was fun like i mean part of it's fun yeah but i don't necessarily think that the proportion of it that's fun is any higher than any other job you know right. <laughs> like it's mostly just work you know it's work and you're like uh trying things out and it's scary and it doesn't work a lot of the time you know probably most of the things that i try don't work but maybe one of the reasons i like editing so much is that i try it at home alone you know 
in my editing program and nobody even knows that I wasted a whole day <laughs> trying something that didn't work. Just toiling away in the cave. <laughs> yeah. And then looking at it and being like, why would I have ever thought that would do that would work? That was a stupid idea. Exactly. Well, Penny, this was so much fun to get to get a little insight into the way you work and get to talk to you about your wonderful work. So I I can't wait to see what you've got coming next and when the next feature you've you, you have coming out, we'll have to have you back on the show and we can uh, sort of break that down and unpack it. Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Cool. Well, thanks so much and we'll be in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, Penny. You didn't think I'd let you get out of here without asking for a review on iTunes, did you? Come on now. You're the best. Also, you know, I, I've got a newsletter over at brendanomero.com. I send it out once a month, usually on the first of the month, with my reading list and the latest comings and goings from the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. You should definitely check it out. And uh, just keep encouraging each other, and I'll see you right back here next time for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Thanks. <laughs>